Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It has been a quiet on Wall Street this summer. Our single best chart is the VIX, and I introduce a presidential moving average, a 48-month, four-year moving average on the VIX. The blue in the background is just simply the VIX, always volatile, but down we go through that 20 uh, level. Stuart Werther is with us, working with Dennis DeBusher and Ed Hyman at ISI uh, years ago, now with BMP Paribas. What does a quiet mean to derivative and quants like you at BMP Paribas? Color the nature of the quiet that we're in. I would say a couple things, one of which being we've entered this period following the Fed's taper tantrum rhetoric where we have more frequent drawdowns. However, in times after the drawdowns, we go back to this very low level of baseball. We've been almost 40 days without a 1% move in the S&P. And for the VIX, it's really that short-dated realized vol that drives right. the index. So from that perspective, we're going to need some kind of economic catalyst, some kind of political right. catalyst to drive it higher. And um, you know, we actually did this very interesting study. So we looked back all the way to the Truman-Dewey election, election of right. 1948. And in this kind of 10 weeks ahead, eight weeks ahead of the election. What happens? Realize vol tends to be lower in elections. So we drive even lower. Guy Johnson, jump in here back to Truman and Dewey. Okay, Stuart. Yeah, vol's really quiet at the headline level, but you look below the surface and there's plenty going on in these markets. Plenty of sector rotation, plenty happening. That's where the story is. We can forget VIX because the story is actually in a sector rotation that is taking us out of utilities, out of telecoms, into the more high beta areas. Indeed. The, uh, the rotation in the financials, which have been a clear outperformer over the past five days, has been quite strong. Energy being better for sale, along with miners. I think we're really actually seeing on an index level uh, realized vol low because of the fact there's been such strong rotation. Now, if you look at different asset classes and how they're actually pricing in the probability of a Fed hike, it seems that equities are actually almost leading the charge. Equity risk premium overall has not um, widened out to a considerable degree, but we have seen very strong rotation. And globally, we've seen by financials better bid over the last few weeks, including Eurostoxx financials, which have outperformed the Eurostoxx 50 index considerably in the last few days. Are we also seeing this, this calm in the VIX because part of the market believes that we're going to see actually the market going in one direction and part of the market thinks we're going to see it going in the other direction? And there's also a kind of cancelling out process, retail versus the pros? Good Indeed, there, there definitely is some dispersion um, among sectors. But I think one thing when you talk about retail versus the pros that's very interesting is the um, CFTC positioning report. So if you look at last Friday's report, which is as of Tuesday, so ahead of Jackson Hole, hedge funds, leveraged funds were the most short they've ever been. Ever in been? Futures. Like ever, you can say? Ever. Ever. As far as, the, as, far as the data we have. How far back does that go, Ruffin? Uh, I believe it goes back to 2011. That's a better headline. David Kotak just woke up from his morning nap. Hedge funds, <laughs> wicked short. That's what we would say in Boston. That's a banner, folks. Hedge funds, wicked short. I love it. Let's go to the chart for Kotak. Young Warther's never seen this chart before. <laughs> this is the acclaimed Ibbotson chart. 
Ibbotson, everybody had this on their wall 30 years ago. Young Kotak knew it then. Here we are back to the Depression, the Guadalcanal rally, and then we got the Malays and the 75 or 82 rally, and up we go. The red line on the left is the Depression because it's log. Bring it over. 2008 was nothing like the Depression. David, I mean, I'm sorry. That's the long-term trend. Do I go to cash amid Stuart Werther's quiet? I we think so. We have a cash reserve. How much? Come on. Twenty percent of the twenty percent cash. Yes. I'm paying you a fee. Well, uh, you're paying me a fee on eighty to do something. I'm just positive. paying you a fee to take me to lunch. Okay. Let's do it. All right. <clears throat> Look, twenty percent cash. I think we have headwinds and the LIBOR spreads triggered this change. <clears throat> LIBOR has forecast power over stock markets. Okay, well, let's rip up the script here, Guy. This is really important. What is your take on the lift of LIBOR? Bob Sinch doesn't agree with David Kotak. He thinks just basically rule changes and manipulation leading to a higher LIBOR. Which is it, Guy? Uh, if I was able to come up with a decent answer to that one, Tom, I'd be sitting on a beach somewhere enjoying myself because... Wait, so that's what Francine's doing. Yeah, well, she's, she's at the aquarium, I think, looking at sharks, which I think is probably a useful exercise in itself. Um, uh, let me do, I just want to come back to this cash position, though, because at the beginning of the year, we came, into, we came off our holidays and we came into the big beginning of the year, David, and we, we panicked, and the market just really rolled over aggressively. We're coming back off our summer holidays. It's September the 1st. There's a big cash position out there at the moment. How is that cash position going to be put to work, if at all? There's two issues here. Do you use valuation metrics which are traditional? They don't seem to work now. Or do you use there is no alternative? Tina. Tina is very seductive. When you're up against a zero interest rate, it's very right. seductive. It's also right. dangerous. Okay, we're going to continue this discussion, but Stuart, I want you to jump in here on the Tina idea. I mean, you're a pro at BMP Paribas saying you're going to go to cash a lot of people by prospectus can't do that. Can you protect yourself with derivative instruments? Uh, yes, you can. And I think one area where we saw this is if you look at the two last drawdowns, so August of 2015 versus January, February right. of 2016. Now, implied vol levels actually spiked in August because people were underhedged. People had not expected. And so now they're all piling in the hedging. And now if you look at actually okay. January and February, they did hedge. Fabulous. Stuart Werther with us with BNP Paribas. James Trevitas uh, considered at one point in the vice presidential derby for Secretary Clinton, although Trevitas, without obvious political ilk, uh, joins us now from the Fletcher School Tufts uh, University. Admiral, I must digress away from the G20 to what we witnessed yesterday within diplomacy and within the Fletcher School heritage, Robert Hormats and others that have darkened the door of Tufts University's international relations effort. A candidate going to see a major diplomatic partner, as we observed yesterday, what will be the follow-on effects for all? I don't think there'll be a significant reaction to this, Tom, other than it'll be an opportunity to kind of compare and contrast the tale of two Trumps, one of which was the Donald Trump that we saw in Mexico City yesterday, who read a prepared statement, seemed quite congenial around the president of Mexico. But that'll be contrasted throughout this campaign with the 
uh, images of Donald Trump calling Mexicans rapists and so on and so forth. So I think it's going to be very difficult for him to square that circle. In terms of serious impact, none. A G20 meeting sneaks up on us. Mr. Putin, the embargoed Putin, will attend. I'm caught unawares. Help us here with who the Vladimir Putin is that potentially will meet with a president in China. I think you're going to see a Vladimir Putin who is closing in on his big objective at this point, which is to get out from under the sanctions in, uh, that have been imposed upon him as a result of Ukraine. His strategy to do that is twofold. One is to continue to sword rattle at the Europeans and effectively make them nervous. Uh, and the other is what's happening in Syria, Tom and Mike. It is uh, using Russian power in a way that he believes will eventually force the United States to negotiate with him in Syria. And that would have uh, his quid pro quo for that would be the knock-on effect of lifting sanctions. So he's playing a complex hand of cards, and he's pretty good at it. How do we counter that? Is the U.S. strategy working, and do we have a good feel for what he's trying to do in, in, in a way that enables us to develop a counter strategy? I think, unfortunately, the best we can say about our current position, and it's a, a fact of the calendar in our electoral politics, is that we're treading water. So we're not going to see any big initiative or any big strategy. I think we're going to have to wait for the next administration, be it Clinton or Trump, who's going to, in my view, have to create a more holistic strategy for dealing with Moscow. Until then, don't look for progress. The situation will probably remain a bit frozen for the next six months. We have um, basically no idea what Donald Trump would do, but Hillary Clinton has a reputation of being more hawkish than yes. uh, Barack Obama. What kind of policy towards the Soviet, towards the Soviet Union, you tell my age, towards Russia, do you think uh, she would have then um, if she comes in as the new administration? Well, first of all, uh, Mike, you're not that far off in terms of the thinking coming out of Moscow these days. It does feel a little Soviet at times. But uh, I think what you'll see uh, Clinton administration do is probably a, a four-point plan, which would be reassuring the uh, NATO allies um, with additional rotational deployments into Eastern Europe. Second will be uh, attempting to keep coherence in the uh, sanctions regime because they really are biting on Moscow. Uh, third would be to up our presence in the cyber world, where we're seeing a great deal of Russian activity. So they'll be a pretty aggressive package of three. And on the other side of the coin, I think you will see at least an attempt to uh, keep communication open, to build a transactional relationship, to cooperate where we can, but confront where we now, must. Mike's such ancient, he goes back to the Soviet Union. Unfortunately, I go back to the Romanovs. Admiral, how czarist is Mr. Putin? Uh, He's utterly czarist. That's really a a nice historical point. Um, He is a unitary decision maker. And in case you missed uh, a tidbit, uh, he recently fired uh, Sergei Ivanov, who was the number two guy in Russia, just took him out. I mean, that's really... Uh, something only his right. czar could do. Well, okay, if if that's the view, and we're sending a lame, you know, by by our process, a lame duck president to China, is the president effective at the G20 meeting, or is this just a dash to November and, frankly, to the European elections beyond? 
It's the latter. If you want another analogy, it's running out the clock in basketball. We're not going to see a big move. Everybody knows it. Well, let's move on. Give us an update on populism in Europe right now. Uh, You're going to be teaching this at Fletcher along with your faculty. I mean, the the mind blurs, but is it a populism like Sanders Trump or is it a unique calculus in France and Italy and elsewhere? I think there's a bit of the same populism you see here, this uh, idea of, quote, the system is rigged, unquote, and also uh, a sense of nationalism. Um, Those are consistent across the entire European milieu. However, when you get in country by country, uh, as is usual in Europe, which clings nation by nation to its its precious nationalism, uh, you will see different strains of it. I think the most virulent, Tom, is in France with uh, the Le Pen family, which uh, has a long history, but is really continuing to build momentum. And it's not impossible to consider France wow. uh, flipping in this way. That would be a, a shocking turn of events. I don't think that'll yeah. happen, but it could. Well, at this point, the French yeah. election is is one of going to be one of the more interesting events of 2017, given the candidates who have already announced. Uh, does France end up changing foreign policy, or does that stay relatively stable while they fight things out on a domestic economic basis? I think the latter. We should remember in Europe, as, as I know we all know, that uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel remains the dominant figure in that landscape. And Germany, because of its size and throwaway, will continue to dominate from a national perspective. So uh, I think what happens in France is important, but not determinative right. in terms of the direction of Europe. Do you teach hub-and-spoke international relations at Tufts? Are you back stuck in a Westphalian world? Which is it? Um, We are shifting our emphasis from the classic Westphalian world, the nation-state-dominated frame. That's going to continue for for decades uh, and perhaps a century or two. But the new areas, uh, the rise of biology, cyber, uh, the role of women, social networks and their connectivity, we're injecting that into the curriculum because those lines are blurring over time. I mean, I'll, I'll go with the idea they're blurring. I don't think they're going to be blurring a G20 with Mr. Putin. I mean, he's, <laughs> no. he seems as Westphalian. Uh, folks, this is uh, we're talking here of Henry Kissinger's arch classic diplomacy, which is a required read. Admiral Stravitas read that, Mike. He was stuck on a, a like a PT boat. In the Persian Gulf, there were the ligats. No, no, no. I was out. I was out fishing, like mine. Uh, that's where I read it. James Trevitas is with us. The admiral is the dean of the Fletcher School of Tufts University. Uh, I wanted to follow up uh, an earlier question I had, uh, which was about Hillary Clinton's policies. Um, you noted uh, that. Um, a lot of what's been going on with with Vladimir Putin is his effort to distract and uh, uh, people from what went on in Ukraine and um, uh, t- loosen the sanctions there. Um, Trump has suggested that he's a friend of Vladimir Putin and that uh, and we saw his former campaign manager made a lot of money trying to uh, lobby on behalf of the pro-Russian Ukrainian government that uh, was in place there is. Do, do we have any reason to believe that there would be some policy the United States could uh, adopt under Trump that would uh, work against our interests and the Ukrainians' interests, or is that reading too much into it? 
I think that probably overstates uh, the direction a Trump presidency goes, um, because the big muscle movements that drive policy decisions in the end don't turn on personality. They tend to turn on uh, the big uh, imperatives in the system. And the big imperative vis-a-vis Russia is the need to reassure our European allies. That'll be irresistible for either administration to keep those links alive, even though we've also heard from candidate Trump about uh, pulling out of NATO. I, I, I think that's all very unlikely. It's a campaign kind of spark interest rhetoric type thing. But uh, in the end, uh, there are too many systemic forces that will continue to drive that transatlantic connection. Help us out as we move towards the debates with the presidential candidates. I mean, we in the media and people on Wall Street uh, tend to focus on the immediate, the story that is right in front of us, and it's the G20 and (laughs) Obama meeting with Putin now. But for the next president who takes office January 20th, what's the biggest foreign policy challenge they're going to face? I would argue it's actually a technological challenge, uh, and we've talked about this before. It's the what is happening in the cyber world. So that is uh, the rise of very offensive, capable nations like Russia and China, but also Iran and North Korea, um, obtaining weapons that can inflict serious damage on our national economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as that moves forward, I think that will become a foreign policy issue. Back to Tom's comments about the blurring of national lines. This cyber world is an unbordered, unboundary right. global commons. Admiral, I just did a Google search on the word migrants, and it is heartbreaking for any and all of any political yep. persuasion. <laughs> Ian Wishart at Bloomberg talking about 3,167 migrants dead or missing in the first piece of 2016, the Australian looking at Angela Merkel, isolated Time magazine talks about uh, migrants' last hope. What is the dynamic into autumn of the international relations of these migrants and these refugees? Unfortunately, I don't have good news. As we look at the populism that's bubbling in Europe, a great deal of it is directed against these migrants. So I think you're going to see a a series of policy choices that will uh, be very unfavorable to these waves of migrants. Hopefully, the the brighter side of the equation is that a realization of these waves, and Tom, these numbers are just staggering, millions moving around the globe, um, that those numbers will drive a call for action to go into Syria, which is the epicenter of this, and uh, create an imposed solution like we did in the Balkans 20 years ago that breaks down this uh, chain of migrants that are flowing across Uh, the Aegean. Admiral, thank you so much. A wonderful September kickoff with you on international relations. James Trevitas is at the Fletcher School, Tufts University. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. We have had an insatiable demand to drag back onto the show Stephen Shork. There is a wide body of listeners questioning oil stability 
and oil price increase. Mr. Shork is with the Shork Report, Philadelphia. Stephen, why are oil prices going to go down? Uh, well, part of it is a uh, big part of it is seasonality, Tom. Uh, we're at a time of the year that uh, the peak season for crude oil demand is over. The peak season for gasoline demand is over. So with this Labor Day weekend, we now transition into the fall, and this is the maintenance season for refineries. So refinery demand for crude oil in the United States and in other key markets in the Northern Hemisphere will drop off significantly over the next two months. So essentially, we came out of this demand season with very high inventory levels. That is to say, we did not deglut the market, and now we are going into the fall turnaround season Mm -hmm. where demand here in the United States will drop off by 1 million barrels a day. Okay, within this is the idea of a smaller, shorter-term price decline right now on West Texas 4409 a barrel I get that do you support Edward Morse at Citigroup and other optimists that there can be stability out one year and two years to a better oil price or do you take your forecast out further uh, right now, I'm going out for one year, and certainly I do like, and I've been a bear now for two years. Uh, we were down below $40 just a, a month ago. I think in the near term, we are heading back below $40 through this turnaround season. Uh, with As far as the year goes, I don't see stability in the market yet, simply because, guys, what have we been hearing now for the past two years? The market's going to balance. The market's going to balance. Well, the market is still not balanced. There is still too much crude oil out there. There is not enough demand chasing that production. And therefore, I still think we're going to see a considerable amount of volatility for at least one year going out. So I don't think we're going to see any significant improvement in price going through 2017. This is a demand story, though. Is supply starting to ratchet back? Well, you can make that argument. I don't see it. For instance, let's take yesterday's Department of Energy weekly update on storage. Well, interestingly enough, over the past three weeks, the DOE has issued not one but two mea culpas. The first mea culpa happened three weeks ago when they admitted what I've been saying all year long, that they are overestimating the amount of production declines in the United States. I say that with confidence because when you looked at the weekly numbers, they simply did not jive with the monthly numbers. The monthly numbers from the Department of Energy showed considerably slower production declines in the United States. So three weeks ago, and let this be a caveat to anyone who wants to trade the NYMEX oil based on these weekly DOE reports, you have to take them with a grain of salt. Because the DOE came out three weeks ago with the mea culpa, they rebalanced the production numbers. So lo and behold, production in the United States is falling, but not nearly at the pace that it was falling or assumed to be falling back in June and July. And then yesterday, the DOE released the second mea culpa saying They've been overestimating consumption this summer. Now, now take that in, guys. For the entire peak demand season, the DOE was giving us false signals. They were overestimating the amount of decline of supply in the market, and they were overestimating the amount of demand in the market. And yet still, oil prices have continued to drift lower. So where are we at this point? Well, gasoline demand in the United States Intuitively, $2 a gallon of gasoline, you would say demand was strong. 
and your intuition is correct. Because we've never had demand for gasoline stronger than we had it for this summer. So crude oil demand was also at a near record high. But even with record high demand for gasoline, near record high demand for crude oil, we are still coming out of this summer with a considerable amount of oil in the ground. That is right. to say we did not see any well, sort of appreciable decline in supply, let alone okay. in the middle of peak demand. Stephen, I got to switch assets uh, to natural gas. We've got a storm a-coming, as they say. Well, there's two storms a-coming, one that go, may go into the Gulf and then uh, run up the East Coast, and one may just hit the East Coast. And uh, the implications I've been talking to commodities people are, obviously, if a storm goes into the Gulf and keeps going, it uh, runs into the um, oil and gas wells that are there. Uh, but along the East Coast, it's going to bring rain. It's going to bring a little cooler temperatures. Uh, air conditioners don't run as much. That should probably depress the price of natural gas, I would imagine. Well, it's exactly, Mike, and it's certainly keeping a lid on the market. <clears throat> Excuse me, and it just goes to show you how quickly these markets have changed. Ten years ago, right around Hurricane Ivan, Katrina, so forth. Back then, in natural gas, if you saw a cluster of thunderstorms form off the coast of the Azores, three weeks outside of the Gulf of Mexico, natural gas would have begun to rally. So if this was 10 years ago, I could promise you natural gas prices would have rallied by at least a dollar by now. But 10 years ago, 18% of the U.S.'s gas production came from the shallow water Gulf of Mexico. But thanks to my home state of Pennsylvania and our neighbor over there in Ohio with the Marcellus and the Utica shale, today the Gulf of Mexico contributes less than 4% of gas production. So we have now transitioned into a period where a hurricane now is potentially a bearish driver as to the points you just referenced, rather than the bullish driver. So, yes, if this storm does go, and it looks like it's going to avoid the oil and gas interests in the shallow water Gulf of Mexico, veer into the panhandle, come up the East Coast, you do have the prospects for cooler weather. You have the prospects to think about this of power outages, of high winds knocking down power lines. So even though there might be demand for natural gas, the utility cannot get that natural gas to the market. So it is a significant driver right now. But whereas 10 years ago, as I said, it was a bullish driver, today it is potentially a bearish driver. And hence why this summer, guys, if you're a bull a natural gas, you are pulling the hair out of your head because the fundamentals, the weather, could not have lined up any more better than they have for you. You would have dialed up this weather and prayed you got the weather that we did. Very hot, humid in the upper parts of the United States, and yet natural right. gas prices are still struggling to get the $18 barrel oil equivalent will, or $3. Will there be a differential between Brent and West Texas Intermediate? I mean, within the natural gas dynamics, does the U.S. dynamics as we go into the winter, does it make that spread widen between Brent or West Texas, or do we stay at a $2, $3 level? Uh, we're still looking at an area where I do think that, no, I don't think the winter in general will have a, a material impact on the Brent TI spread. Uh, this is more of a spread that is driven not necessarily by, by the weathers or, or by the season, but more about the, but the global pace. And as you just pointed out prior to coming on, yeah. about the dismal outlook for U.S. economic growth. Yes, this, there is a huge overglut in supply, but a lot of this because we don't have demand. 
And I've got news for you guys. The United States, it, it, it isn't all great here from, from an economy standpoint. We are going into now a record year, a tenth year, where we're going to have sub-3% growth in the United States. So there is a, a supreme lack of economic demand, hence why not just oil, but commodity, uh, consumption commodities in general are lower and cannot break out of the doldrums. Uh, you mentioned oil prices uh, going into the winter. We're in the shoulder season and, and uh, what they may do in the winter. What about gas prices? We keep reading that every month that goes by in 2016 is the warmest month ever. Uh, does that suggest that we are going to use a lot na- less natural gas during the winter and that the long-term prospects for that commodity aren't so hot? So to speak. Uh, right. They, they are, let's say they are challenged right now because, as I just pointed out, this, right, this weather has been phenomenal if you were a bull. It just doesn't get any better with the amount of air conditioning demand. And hence, the summer rebuild in storage for next winter for, for natural gas storage is dismal. I mean, we are coming in at less than half the normal the build-out coming into this winter. And, and yet, gas prices cannot rally. So it all comes down to Mother Nature. If we get another winter, like we saw last winter, that is to say when we did not have a winter, then it's going to be a horrendous first six months of the year for natural gas. Natural gas prices are right now flirting right around $2.90 a decatherm. We got down to below $2 last year. And if we get another winter, if, 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 right, if we get another winter, then clearly we are still headed significantly lower. Okay. But, but, but I, I have to point out, because people get themselves destroyed in natural gas because there's an overwhelming sense of complacency. That said, yeah. if we get a winter like two winters ago, <clears throat> where you right. start to talk about polar vortex, gas yeah. Don't short a gas will rip your face yeah. off. I'm more worried about the shark vortex. Yeah, Stephen Shark, thank you so much. Always gas will rip your face off. Mike, Mike, That's yeah, like trader that. talk yeah. for you. That's trader talk. I, I, I tell you, Mike, we get a huge response from Mr. Shark is on a lot of people, you know, whether right or wrong. I mean, we just like to do the different opinions, and we're honored that Edward Morse joined us. I believe it was yesterday, but with Citigroup, but. There are a lot of dis, uh, there's a dispersion of opinions to put it politically delicately on oil right now. Stephen Shork with the Shork Report. Again, we protect the copyright of our guests. Get the report from the Shork Report. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.